Welcome to the Vivid Church Podcast. Wherever you're listening from today, it's our hope that this message would help you reflect the light of Jesus' life for all to see. Kids, what's going on? How are you guys? Grab a seat. I feel like I got the judgment seat here today, <laughs> looking down on everybody. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So good to see you guys. Is it? I don't want to be, you know, intruding on any kind of vibe here, but it would be possible to get some light so I can see our our the fine looking people of this Kitsilano campus here. Ah, oh, there we go. Amazing. Now I can connect with your face, and uh, I don't have to feel like the only one here that is seen. Uh, so good. Hey, listen. Do you love who you're sitting next to today? Hopefully. You need to turn your neighbor and say, I've been praying all, all week long with great labor that you would sit next to me this week. And so, come on, give your neighbor a high five. Say, you, you never look better a day in your life. <laughs> Listen, uh, today I'm excited to bring you guys a message that I honestly believe is going to speak to many of you here today. And, uh, happens to be one of my one of my favorite passages to preach from and uh it's because the the scripture that i've chosen to really speak to you guys tonight is one where uh i honestly believe it it captures the heart of god in an old testament like you know kind of uh you know filter if you will it's from the old testament so many people often have a hard time you know sometimes seeing what it's saying to you in the moment i think you can see jesus all throughout this text and i'm excited about it but I'm going to invite you, if you've got a Bible, if you've got a phone out, you go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And as you guys are going there, I just got to give a big shout out to, to, to Pastor Justin and to Jen and all that they're doing across here. Honestly, my time in Vancouver, I, I'm, not, I'm going to be walking away this week and I'm not going to show who's, who came up with a better deal, all right? Because honestly, I feel so invested into and blessed by your pastors and by your community. You guys have been next level. I'd love it if you understood. You've been blessed with some incredible leaders. And uh, across this house, you guys have done phenomenal today. And just seeing with the journey so far over the last couple of years, can you give it up for your senior pastors? I think they're so worthy to give honor to whom honor is due. Love you guys so much. And, uh, well, there's no doubt when you meet legit people, you just go, man, I like you a lot. I just love people who are just themselves and, you know, having a go at stuff. And honestly, this is like a pioneering work. And I am so inspired by your journey, Vivid Church. And so it is a real pleasure and an honor to be here with you, with you tonight. And I know that my wife, Jules, back home, is sending her love. She kind of held the fort down this morning. I called her this afternoon. How the service is going? <laughs> it was so amazing. And the best day ever. And she's just hilarious. And uh, my wife exudes what they call as joy. And she just laughs her way through life. So I have a pretty good life, you know. And so... It's a lot of fun, but she sends her love as well as my other three daughters back home. I got Abby, I got Finley, and and uh, little Rowan back home, and then I got my eldest here, Judah Scott Davidson, on the front row, my man, and uh, no better travel buddy to do ministry alongside than him. He is the greatest. We call him Judah on the good days, Judas on the bad days, and uh, and Judy when he when he whines. Right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. We love you, buddy. You're always due to me. His name means praise for those of you who don't know. And basically, the kid sings his way through life in the hotel this morning. All I, I woke up to him waking up going, Dad, the dolphins yesterday at the Ukraine were amazing. And then I heard him singing his way through the entire morning. And it was awesome. He's a gift. And uh, I love you, buddy. Look at me. Look at me. I love you, buddy. You're the greatest. <laughs> the best. Hey, 2 Samuel chapter 9, let's get into the reading of the word today, because if all else fails and this thing goes down, 
We read the word, right? So we read the word. Hey, 2 Samuel chapter 9, and it's a, it's a passage that I'll give you some context in after we kind of read it. The, the length of the sermon is really going to be kind of explaining what's going on because uh, some of you are going to hear this reading and you're kind of going to have a context for what's really happening. You're going to be wondering to yourself. You're going to be left with a level of question about what this actually means. And so I'd encourage you just to follow along with me today, and I'll explain it in a bit. So sit tight. But verse 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now David, king of Israel at the time, it says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. Everyone say Ziba. What a name, right? Ziba. So he said, he called, when David had called him to himself, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, here I am at your service. And then he said to, uh, the king said to him, is there not anyone of the house of Saul left that I may show the kindness of God to? And Ziba said to the king, well, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in both his feet. Isn't that amazing when you're not known by who you are, but you're known by your issues and you're known by the dysfunction in your life or in this case, uh, you know, your condition. Uh, I think that so many times if you read through the Gospels and even the Bible itself, you'll see a blind man. (laughs) Well, what was his name? We don't know. We know him by his issue. We see the woman with the issue of blood. What was her name? We don't know. She was known by her issue. We got the demoniac in Luke 5. What's his deal? No one knows. And I don't know about you if you can identify, but here is a man, again, being labeled by his condition and not by his identity. But the question is, is there still anyone left that he might show the kindness of God? I want to really draw your attention to that language there for a moment. Verse 4 says, so the king said to him, well, where is this kid? And Zeba said to the king, well, indeed, he's in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. <laughs> Lodabar, the place where the bar be set low. You get what I'm saying? And so it, said, it was said that now when uh, King David sent out and brought him out of the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, now when Mephibosheth, or Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, uh, this is uh, King Saul, right? Then his son, so King Saul was the, the first king reigning over Israel, for those of you who didn't know this, okay? First king that ever reigned over Israel. He's got a kid named Jonathan, and then obviously Jonathan has a kid named Mephibosheth, okay? So in this story, King David went out and brought him out. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David. He fell face, prostrated on face first, you know, face down, and said, David said to him, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here's your servant. And so David said to them, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and restore to you the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And the king called as he was Saul's servant and said to him, no, sorry, and then he bowed himself and said, why is your, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Can you imagine this? Here's this kid off in this place in Lodabar where the barbie set low, and this, he's sent upon and summoned by the king to come into the palace. And this guy, Ziba, knows his whereabouts, runs off into the distance, grabs him, brings him back. The kid falls on his face because he's terrified of the king, thinking, oh my goodness, he's going to execute me. And he says, what do you want? Here's a king's kid, Saul's grandson, saying, a king's kid, royal blood running through his veins, talking like a dead dog. Interesting to me. And what it says is, so David sent him, had him sent before him, and he said this to him. He said, hey, the king called to Ziba, didn't even acknowledge the the dead dog comment. He said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all to his house. You, therefore, you and your sons and your servants are going to work the land for him, and you're going to bring in the harvest for him, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, he shall eat bread at my table always, continually. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That makes 35. Yes, I did take math here today. Okay. 
And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. Then Ziba uh, went forth and did that. As for Mephibosheth, though, the king said, he's going to eat at my table like one of the king's sons. He's going to sit next to Solomon and, and next to Absalom. He's one of us now. Okay? And it says, he shall eat at my son, like, like a son. Mephibosheth had a son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. And yet, it says, there's the clutch. And he was lame in both of his feet. Would you bow your head with me for a moment? Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through this text, would you? Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here in the West Coast, hashtag best coast. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here together here at Vivid Church on this incredible uh, day here. God, I pray that, Father, you would bless people, you'd speak to people, and you'd take a text like this and, and unearth it and, and bring so much uh, wisdom and revelation to people that you'd speak to people in the situations and the circumstances that they find themselves. And I pray that, God, not a single person will walk out the same way. I pray that you'd speak to people in ways that only you know how to do in moments like these. And, God, I pray that you'd cause there to be life and encouragement and just a, an, an incredible conviction to know that God, I am loved and that we are loved together. And so God, would you do what only you can do in moments like these? Would you have your way with your people in this church and take it from strength to strength in the coming weeks and months ahead in Jesus' name? And everybody said together, amen and amen. Hey, you know what? I love this text. And uh, the reason for it is because it's really uh, one of the greatest depictions of the gospel found in the Old Testament. You know, oftentimes, You'll see stories of Jesus throughout the, the Gospels, particularly in Emmaus, where these two guys, Jesus had been crucified, and he has walking seven-mile journey with these two guys and basically unravels the Old Testament and shows them himself in the text of the Old Testament, types and shadows of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, this is one that is honestly real special. I think it's going to speak to many here today. But there, one, some of the things that we need to understand in order to understand the context of this scripture is to understand that before David, the king of Israel, the most famous king of Israel, ever took reign, he was anointed to be king by the, the prophet Samuel, all right? So this prophet who basically heard from God and he came on behalf of Israel and, and prophesied and acted in a very, like, in a governance type role over the, uh, over the nation and appointed and anointed David to be king over Israel. But here's the thing, while he anointed King uh, David to be king at this young, like, you know, punk age kind of thing. What happened was there was still another king, his, the first king reigning over Israel in its entire history named Saul. Yeah. Hashtag better call Saul. Okay. And, uh, I'm sorry. I got to break these bad jokes. I'm sorry. See that? This is, yes. Genius. Anyways. Um, and so what happened was Saul had been in, in rule and he had great charisma. The people said, wow, look how handsome he is. He taught, he sits a foot higher than everybody else in society. He's handsome. He's good looking. He must be the Lord's anointed. And so lo and behold, God actually said, well, you know what? If that's what you want, whatever. It's not about that. I wish I could just rule you myself, but fine, have your king. And so he had all this charisma. The only thing is while Saul had a ton of charisma, he really sucked as a leader. And what happened was, while he was overdosing charisma, he waned in a thing called character and obedience to God. And so God rejected him as king over time and went and had Samuel replace him and anoint King David. The only problem is, while David was anointed to be the next king, he was not yet appointed to be the next king. There was still someone else sitting on the throne. And that someone else happened to be Saul, who became deranged and like a wild maniac because of the insecurity that struck his heart when he saw that he was getting replaced. You can imagine King Saul and David weren't exactly sitting around the dinner table 
you know, snapping selfies together and acting as besties. They were arch enemies of sorts because King Saul was so threatened by him. He chased him around for a better part of 13 years through the world, Israeli, you know, Israel's wilderness and, you know, countryside and basically found David hiding in caves and looking, you know, kind of running for his life. And uh, the, the whole clutch of this story is really interesting. It gets even more dramatic in that, while Saul was hunting down David because he was threatened by him and all that was across his life, because you know how it is when he, you know, David killed Goliath, the, the ladies came singing Saul's praises. Saul kills his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. It's like, it's not cool to have number two sung at a higher rate than number one. You know what I'm saying? So Saul loses his mind. And the whole clutch of this story, the kicker, is that Jonathan, the king, the residing king, Saul's son, Jonathan, he is best friends with David. And this kid, Jonathan, is the blood heir to the throne after Saul. But because he recognizes God's hand on David, he goes, you know what, bro? I see God evidently on your life. I will gladly step aside and give you the, the rule, the, the throne, the crown. It's yours, bro. And I will serve you. And so he protects David all these years while his father is a madman on the wild hunt and on this, like, you know, basically, uh, you know, well, yeah, this, it's basically like that, you know, I, well, I don't know why I'm thinking about that. You know, that guy on the horse and he's like track man tracker, you know, that's anybody come on. Yes, man. Tracker. This is the, this is the imagery I get like Saul, like man tracking David, you know, through the wilderness. He's like, oh, there's a broken leaf. Get him. You know, like, yeah. Anyways, I'm sorry. That's my weird quirky side coming out. But, uh, you know, what happens is Jonathan constantly covers for David. And would meet him out in fields and say, listen, don't come back to the house for the party that you've been invited to tonight. Dad's off his rocker and he's going to spear you to a wall. So, you know, stay clear. It's not a safe environment to come home tonight. So he's like, all right. And lo and behold, this would happen over and over again. Jonathan covers for David. Well, what happens is over time, both King Saul and Jonathan, they go out to war against their arch enemies, the Philistines. And as fate would have it, both fall prey to the sword against their arch enemies, the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. Well, word, as you can imagine, travels quick when the king of Israel and his heir, blood heir to the throne the next, is killed in battle. It goes back, and as you know, they went, the people from the war right there at the battle of, with the Philistines grabbed Saul's crown and ran it to David in Ziklag. And so word gets back to Jerusalem, the palace, and here's the thing that y'all need to understand about this story is the traditions that men held at that time. When there would be a new king coming to rule, if they did not come from the blood, royal bloodline, they would actually go and exterminate and, 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 and slaughter and murder anyone of the old king's family to eliminate anyone posing a threat or revolt to the new king's dynasty and reign. And so that was the tradition that kings held at that time. And so what happened was, when word came back to the palace that King Saul and Jonathan had been killed, the, everybody went into an absolute panic. Interesting enough is the city Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the word Jerusalem. Yeru Salem, Salem, Shalom. It means the city of peace. And isn't it funny how quickly that city exchanged its peace for panic upon hearing word that the king had fallen to the sword. Everybody grabbed everybody that was of the royal bloodline and grabbed them. One of which was Jonathan's son, whose name wasn't Mephibosheth, as this text says. First Chronicles 8.34 and First Chronicles 9.40 actually tell us that that kid's name was actually Maribel at one point. 
Now the text, we know him as Mephibosheth, but his name was Maribel. And the, the, the name Maribel means the Lord is my advocate. All right, Maribel. Many of you be familiarized if you're in church of Baal worship. Well, this is before Baal worship was a thing. Baal was simply a term that described master or Lord. So it was actually a great name. Maribel was, it simply meant the Lord is my advocate. And isn't that the truth? God is our advocate. And that was this kid's identity. That's what he drew from, that God is on my side, that God is for me and not against me, that God is, 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 is a, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is my advocate. Advocate. He is not my adversary. And yet it says, when the maids of the palace heard that King Saul had fallen prey to the sword, they grabbed in haste this kid, Maribel, and grabbed him and scooped him up and started running. But unfortunately, the maid falls and throws the kid forward. And he, at five years old, falls to the ground and is left a paraplegic by the fall. He's crippled and left in a crippled condition, unable to walk. It sounds a lot like the Gospels, doesn't it? Who all of mankind have fallen short of the glory of God. Adam and Eve, it was called the fall of man. And as a result, they found themselves lame, unable, crippled in a condition called sin, unable to walk with God in the capacity that they once were able to. And their peace in the garden was quickly exchanged for panic. And they even dis they even sought to hide their nakedness. And it says, after the result of eating the fruit of the, in the garden, it says they felt shame for the first time. At nowhere else before that was shame, if you're not present, in the mindset of Adam and Eve. And yet after sin had entered in, they feel shame and they bear a sense of shame. You know, what's interesting to me is if you go and look in the life of Mephibosheth, his name means a bearer of shame. See, it's interesting. I think that every, every one of us could probably relate to a time where maybe you fell. Maybe you fell into a measure of sin in your life. Maybe you fell and, and you, maybe it wasn't even you. Maybe you got dropped just like Adam, you and I here who are deemed sinners in the eyes of God. It's not because you and I even sinned. It's because somebody else dropped us and his name was Adam and Eve. We're not sinners because we sinned. I don't know if you knew that. We're actually sinners, the Bible says, because of they sinned. I don't know if you think that's unfair, but I do. I'm like, at least let me be called a sinner in the eyes of God because I did something. But this guy became a bearer of shame because of what somebody else had done. And you know what? Romans 5, 7, 5, 19, it says this. It says, for by one man's disobedience, all were made sinners. Who is that one man? It was Adam. But by one man, that's not fair, is it? But by one man's obedience, that's Christ, all became righteous. That's equally not fair, but I'll take that side. I'll gladly wear righteous titles across my life on account of what somebody else did, and that is Jesus. See, in this case, friend, I want you to see it. Isn't it interesting? That this guy's entire identity changed on account of what a circumstance and a situation that happened in his life where he fell. And I think that many of us, I don't know who I'm speaking here today, but I really believe that I've come on assignment all the way from Ottawa to restore somebody's peace, to welcome you back into, once again, the city of God's peace, Jerusalem, spiritually speaking, if you will. Because the reality is, is that this kid was dropped and he fell and his name, he then took on a new name in, in the society's eyes, Mephibosheth. In other words, son of shame, bearer of shame. And I wonder if there's anybody here who's ever done anything or fell into a certain something in life where you didn't feel like you hit the mark and you stopped believing in your identity that you are truly, God is your advocate and you exchange God as my advocate and he's on my side for now I am a son of shame and I'm no longer worthy of the title. 
I'm no longer, an, God is not my advocate. I see him as my adversary on the witch hunt to get me and to honestly see me taken out. And so it says, just like Adam and Eve covered up their nakedness and went into hiding, it says that Mephibosheth ran for a city called Lodabar. And there it says he hid for the better part of his life from five years old. It says he was old enough to have children. He was married with children. This guy was years in and found himself in this place called Lodabar. Interesting in, uh, enough today, the word Lodabar has a dual meaning. It means no pasture and no word. That's what it means. No pasture, no word. And what I think is interesting is how many of us might relate to this more than we realize. See, when I think of no pasture, I've got to be honest, I'm a farmer's kid. I grew up on a dairy farm milking cows my entire life. So when I think pasture, guys, I know you'd never know it. Come on, somebody. Okay. But when I think pasture, I think metal muffins and cow patties. You know what I'm saying? But then I went to the Bible and said, what did you mean by pasture? And Psalm 23, the Lord maketh me, uh, he leads me beside still waters and makes me lie down in green pastures. So pastures, there's still water. Has anybody ever had an opportunity to sit lakeside in one of those Adirondacks last summer? Grab your nice brew of coffee with the steam coming off and the fog still across the water in the early mornings and sit in beside still waters. And isn't it so peaceful? It's tranquil, isn't it? It's a place, in other words, to rejuvenate and to be refreshed. And the pastors that I believe the, the Bible is speaking about is what many of us might know is not as a cow pasture. Maybe it's cottage country or God's country. It's the place where we go to vacate on weekends to find rest for our souls. It's to unwind and to declutter and to let ourselves sigh as some, a sigh of relief. So interestingly enough, if that's what pastors mean in Psalm 23, then we could equate what happens in this scripture when it says Lodabar is a place of no pasture. In other words, it's a place where you have no rest. It's a place where you have no word as well. If I didn't have any rest, that means I'm experiencing a level of shame and I'm therefore restless. I'm not able to be refreshed and rejuvenated. As a matter of fact, I'm, I find myself anxious. And why would I feel anxious? Because it's not only a place of restlessness, it's equally a place of no word. And maybe you can relate to the idea of what it's like to live in a space of no word. Some of you single, ready to mingle guys, you're like, hey girl, I'm single, ready to mingle. I'm waiting for you to give me that jingle. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and so you've had this moment where she called you back and you're like, hey, girl, hey, you know, and she was like, thank you, next, you know. No Ariana Grande fans out there. My wife is obsessed with that song and it makes me want to poke my eye out with a fork. All right. But here's the deal is maybe you find yourself in a moment of vulnerability, pouring your heart out to that woman or vice versa you, to that guy, ladies, and you were met with silence and no word on the other end of the phone. How many of you guys know it's like, I mean, like, I didn't love you. I mean, I just, I mean, like, I love doing coffee with you. It's a lot of fun. And you just, boom, and the anxiety went whoop, and you can feel your, your pulse in your earlobes kind of thing. You're so embarrassed, you know, and that no word left you hanging and caused anxiety and, and all kinds of, or maybe, maybe you understand it in a more of a serious way. Maybe you went to the doctors and they said, hey, man, this isn't good. We are actually concerned that there's something showing here. And you found yourself getting a, somewhat of a diagnosis, but they had to do tests. And so they sent off your, your test to the lab. But you're living in the space between the diagnosis of something awful hanging over your head and yet getting the truth of what it is. And you're living in Lodabar, no word. 
And how many guys know that's where the enemy has a heyday with you because he gives you the worst possible scenarios of what you think might happen and you're left to your own demise and your own thoughts and that is a dangerous place to live when you don't have God's thoughts and God's mind on the matter. You are left to your own thoughts and putting and filling in the gaps yourself. Maybe you are a married person here today and things got rocky and you started to see some trimmings and stuff. You're like, oh, I don't want to know, I don't know. And you're left in a place of suspicion of not knowing and it is an awful place to live. Maybe the D word, the divorce word has come into the conversation and yet there's no word and there's no peace and there's restlessness and therefore anxiety and the emotions. Maybe you find yourself here today and you found out about something awful and traumatic that has taken place to one of your kids or, or, or to somebody that you love in life and you've not yet figured out what it is and you're living in a place, in a space of no word. Do you hear what I'm trying to say and draw out of this? Lodabar is a really awful place to live and no wonder, it's also according to the Bible, was way off into the wilderness in a desolate alienated and kind of uh, deprived kind of space and place. It was arid. It was wilderness. It was dry. And here's what I think that for many of us is when we live in a space of no restlessness, bearing a level of shame that we were never experienced uh, or supposed to experience, you can be left to your own thoughts and find yourself alienated from the place of your destiny that you once lived in. You're a king's kid, every single one of you. But yet some of us have allowed circumstance to tell us that we're no longer, God is no longer our advocate. He's our adversary out on the hunt for us and that we are living in a place of no word, not knowing the heart of God, not knowing that he's good and left to wonder in this place of Lodabar and wander. That is the essence of Lodabar. It's a place you are left to wonder, does God love me? Could he possibly love a sorry mess like me? Could he possibly ever use a sorry mess like me. This is the place and the space that many people in our world occupy. They're wondering, what is the heart of God? It's not that I see God loves you and that's good for you, but I don't know about me. You don't know what I've done. And I would simply say to you, no, you don't know where, what he has done clearly on your behalf. You say, you don't know how bad I've been. I'd say, no, you don't know how good he is. That's the essence of the problem, isn't it? is that you're living in Lodabar. No word. So it says that he hid in this place in isolation, alienation, in great distance from his destiny. And I wonder if there's anybody who's living far from God right now, far away from the destiny that you know you have for you because of what has taken place in your past. And maybe there's just something that has crippled you and left you in a crippled condition. And there's something of your past that you just can't seem to get past that has defined you and allowed to become an issue to become your identity and to make you a bearer of shame. Isn't it interesting that David says, is there not anyone left of the household of Saul that I might show my kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And so somebody says, well, yeah, there's this guy who knows their whereabouts. His name, his name is Ziba. He says, bring him to me. And he was a servant of Saul who is now serving King David. And this, kid, this guy comes and says, hey, I'm Zeba. He says, you Zeba? At your service. Interesting to me is the word uh, Zeba, it literally means stationed. And he knew the whereabouts of those in the palace of those that had exchanged their, pa- their peace for panic and had isolated themselves on account of being dropped and falling. And it says that this, he's like, yeah, he, he, he's actually out in Lodabar. He lives in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel. Makir means sold. Amiel means the people of God. And how many guys know when Adam and Eve fell into sin, we all were sold into a slave state. The people of God were sold into sin in a place of isolation, left to wander and to wonder. 
aimlessly what was the heart of God and to wander around in that. And so he says, yeah, he's out there. He goes, well, go bring him to me. Is there anyone left I may show the kindness of God to? Now, you gotta remember, so the, he goes and prepares the royal chariots and this guy goes, how many guys know Zeba represents you and I here who are the church today? I don't know if you're a military person, but in Ottawa, we have a fair amount of military in our church. And when I say the word stationed, they automatically understand what that means. You've been positioned for a purpose. You are not in a place that you've been stationed. You wouldn't choose that place to live if you had not been stationed there. Zeba was one who was stationed to serve the king. And the order of the king was to find the whereabouts of those who had fallen prey to their issues affecting their identity and hiding from the king hiding from God. Those who are yet to realize that the king loved them and was not angry at them, that he wasn't going to take them out. Because isn't that how we operate? The traditions of our time says that God must be angry at me. The tradition of our times, much like theirs, says that God must not love me. That God must, would likely judge me because that's what the traditions of our time says. And how many guys know the gospel breaks the tradition of men? It says you get good when you've done bad. That doesn't make sense. I know, it's called grace. It's called unmerited, undeserved, and unearned kindness of God displayed across your life. It will confound the wisest. It'll make even the most sour face pucker up and go, wow. It is unbelievable. And so those that are stationed, see that's, I'm a zebra here on assignment today to find, is there anybody out there? Do you have any whereabouts on those who might need a word from God to settle their hearts and to restore peace to their lives because they've been living alienated and separated from God. And so it says he went out and grabbed this kid. He brought him before the king and he says, what do you want with, with uh, here I am, your servant. Here's a king's kid who's a son acting like a servant. And he throws himself down. And he says, what do you want with such a dead dog? Again, a king's kid talking like a dead dog. David doesn't even so much as listen to him and look in verse 7. He says, so David said to him, do not fear. Can I give somebody a word today who has been allowing fear to grip their heart and to isolate you? I believe that God is saying, do not fear. For he says, I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. Stop. What do you, wait. <laughs> Here I am at your service. Please don't kill me because the tradition of the time said he would be executed on the spot. Here's a kid who could pose a threat. Here's a kid who has royal, he is the true heir to the throne. He's the only one left in the house of the Saul with royal blood in his veins. How many of you guys know that's you and I here today? And this is the story. It says that he was like, oh, and how many of you guys know, why do you think he was living in such an issue? Because at five years old, see the enemy knew he was next in line and he threw, he evoke panic in the hearts of the people so that the people believed a lie that wasn't even, a, it wasn't even warranted. It wasn't even leveled against what was true. On what grounds? Why would David not go like everybody else and execute the kid? Get rid of him. You don't want him to pose a threat. What's wrong with you? Well, the kid's lame. That's why he spared him. No, wrong. It's not why he spared him. First Samuel chapter 20 tells us why he spared him. Jonathan, covered for David one so many times that he found out, he came out to meet him in a, in a, in a field and says, my dad's He's madman tonight, man. You don't want to come home and we're not going to have dinner tonight. You need to stay away because he's trying to plot to get you in the room so he can kill you. And so he goes, listen, man, it's getting too crazy. The, you know, the tension's building around here in the palace. You need to stay away from now on. He goes, promise me this. Jonathan says to David, promise me this. 
He goes, when you become king of Israel, promise me that you will act favorably toward my family and the, 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 the grandchildren of my father Saul forever. He goes, and promise me that you'll act kindly and, and justly toward our family. And that, in other words, you won't kill us. And he goes, Jonathan, you're my boy. He's like, bro, we're like brothers. He's like, of course I will. In that moment, it says that, you, that according to ancient uh, you know, custom, they would have slit their wrists and bled and put their wrists together. And they would have cut a blood covenant in that moment. And in that moment, they cut a covenant between the two of them that they would equally act righteously, kindly, and favorably toward forever, no matter what happened. Well, isn't that the case with you and I? That God the Father cut a covenant 2,000 years ago and slit and had something pierced through his leg, his feet, and his wrists, and, and so that he would act favorably to you and I. But how many people live in a place of isolation and never realize that that's the truth? Never realized that the cross actually changed everything, that a covenant changed everything. It broke the tradition of time that says you are worthy of judgment. It says now you are worthy of good things and that you can sit among the king's sons as one of them. And so in this moment, it says that David cut this covenant with Jonathan and went on to become king. And I, I, you know what I think? I think that one day he was sitting there with his feet up, eating his grapes and drinking his wine and eating chicken wings because that's what I'd be doing if I was king. And he was like, boom, and he's looking at the thing. He's like, oh, he's like, oh man, my scar. And the scar on his wrist reminded him of a covenant that he, and he started reminiscing about his times with Jonathan. And he looked at his wrist and he says, hey, is there anyone left of the household of Saul that I might show my kindness to? Get it? For Jonathan's sake. I didn't like Saul, but I loved his son. I loved his son. Interesting enough is the word Jonathan means the gift of God. And who is the gift of God but Jesus who came to gift his life on behalf of humanity and give himself, just like this story, David represents God the Father, Jonathan represents Jesus, and they cut a covenant together that says they will act favorably toward the house of Saul, otherwise known as the household of Adam, who in the beginning showed, you know, a disobedience toward God and is rejected and fell. And how many of you guys know in this story, this is a picture of, it's actually a story of you and I. And the question that's being posed here tonight is that much similar to what Jesus is, David asked the people, is what God is asking you. Hey, he's asking, is there anybody left? And so he gets to this place, is there anybody left that I may show the kindness of God to? What would God say? For Christ's sake. For Christ, and so this kid gets on the ground and he goes, man, do not be afraid for I will surely, this is emphatic language. This is not left to question. This is not maybe if I'm feeling like it. No, this is a covenant. He will, he must. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. Say what? You see, you didn't know? I cut a covenant with your dad years ago that says I would act fit. Man, you've been living in hiding all for naught. Why? You didn't know. Man, I love you. And so in this moment, he says, come here, man. And he calls over Ziba, the church. It says, you're going to serve this guy. And you're going to help love this guy to a whole new level of life. And how many guys know the fruit of our efforts in, in grace is that we don't do the work. But John 6, 29 says, but what is, 
What is the work of God? It says to behave like most Christians would say, but that's not what it said. It says, but to believe in the one whom God has sent. Friend, here today at Kitsilano, I'm not sure if you're following this story yet, but the gist of the story is, hey, bro, hey, girl, you're good. What I'm trying to communicate in, in maybe, anyways, I'm not sure if you're following up, but my point is, is that no matter where you've been or what you've done, I want you to know that God will always emphatically, he has promised to act favorably toward you forever and will never be angry nor rebuke you again, Isaiah 54, but will establish you, Isaiah 54, with an everlasting kindness, an everlasting kindness. And everybody tries to judge you or bring accusation against you. Look at the end of Isaiah 54. It says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper and get this. Why? It says, because their righteousness is from me. You see, God is the one who declares you right, not because of what you have or you haven't done, but because of what he has done and because of what God, David did with Jonathan and what he did. It was a covenant that established you. It says, I'll act favorably. It has nothing to do with you. It has ever, it's for Jonathan's sake. And I wonder if there's a person in here who for Christ's sake needs to be convinced of the fact that you're good enough, that you're accepted and you are worthy of the life that you have in your heart, the dream. You no longer have to be disqualified or rejected. You no longer have to live in anxiety or wonder or wander a day longer. For Christ's sake, you belong here. For Christ's sake, I don't care what you did or what you haven't done. You are enough in Jesus' name. And he will surely show you his kindness here today. Hey, for Christ's sake, I'm not sure if you're here today, but I don't care where you've been or where you haven't been. He will surely show you his kindness here today. For Christ's sake, I don't care where you were on Friday night and where you find yourself here today. It doesn't matter. God will surely show you his kindness here today. And wave after wave, his grace is here to meet with you and empower you to know that you're accepted before the king. And get this, he says, not only will I surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, but then he turns around and says, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. He was a king. That dude went from broke as to the most rich person in Israel in an instant. And I pray that you lose your poverty mentality with God. That you would understand that he has restored to you all the lands of Adam to you. Like God walked with him in the cool of the day in the garden, now so it shall be for you. You can have all of that and more. All of heaven's arsenal is at your resource. All of heaven's best is at your aid to simply say, all of what is mine is now yours. And I pray that the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3, would show you all that is of Christ and make it known to you here today. To walk you through the mansion and the wealth and the riches of Christ and make it known here today because you are a son and you are a daughter of the Most High. I don't care if you've been sold off into a slave place called sin. Christ through the covenant at the cross has made you right and it's declared that I will forever and everlasting kindness establish you. This is good news. And so it says, and King called Ziba and said, Saul's servant said to him, and it calls Saul's servant Ziba, he called him to himself. He says, I've given your master's son all that belonged to Saul into his house. You therefore go work the land. See, this is the beauty of grace is that God does all the work. The father sets up all the work. It's not something that you need to perform. And some of you, you've only known Christianity as something that you need to do or not do. It's a set of thou shalt nots. And I came here to tell you, News, a spoiler alert, 
you can let your hair down and your, your shoulders down here today to realize that he is the one who performs on your behalf. Not So this is about God loving you, not about you proving your love to God. This is about him working on your behalf, not you working on behalf of him. And it's when we understand that because he first loved us, we can therefore love others well. And I pray that that love would permeate your heart here today. That you'd be convinced of the fact that no matter where you've been or what you've done, what you did or you didn't do, whether you have or you haven't, whatever that means for you, that God is looking at you here today. A zebra like me is on a hunt for you today to rescue you and to bring you and restore you back into Jerusalem, the city of your peace. I pray that you would have your peace restored, that you'd sit back as a king's kid, as not a servant or a slave to God that performs on his behalf, but as a son at the table. And it says, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. I'm carried to the table. You know that song? Totally off key with this one. And that's because I've preached three times and lost my voice yelling at the Canada game. You know what I'm saying? I'm carried. Okay, do it. Here's my point. So Zeba carries this paraplegic kid to the table, sits him down, and says, Zeba said to the king, according to all that my Lord has commanded, your servant, so shall your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, it says, said the king, I want to emphasize what he's saying, as for Mephibosheth, the son of shame, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Zeba were servants of Mephibosheth. God has I believe he's assigned angels to come and minister to you on behalf of himself. He's created Hebrews 3. He's caused them to come and minister on your behalf, surround you with his resource in heaven's best. And it says this, it says, And all who dwelt in Zeba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, the city of peace, once again. For he ate continually at the king's table. And yet, check this out, he was lame in both his feet. Do you guys not see how incredible that is? Why did it end that scripture by pointing out the fact the kid was lame in both his feet? Because some of you are considering the fact that, yeah, I know God loves me, but he loves me when I perform, right? And then I can't walk this thing out, man. I keep screwing up and I keep messing up. I can't do this walk, this Christian thing. And it says, I want you to know something. He continually ate there and he was lame forever and he never learned how to walk it out. He never got past the fact that he was in a crippled condition, but yet he was accepted and approved and affirmed and sat as one of the sons. You know, what's amazing about the king's table is that he would have sat at the table and when he was placed there, he would have been sitting and his legs, his crippled condition would have been hidden underneath the table of the Lord. He would no longer be aware or see his crippled condition. You know what he'd see? The bread of the royal palace sitting in front of him. You know what I believe that God wants you to be aware of when you come to church? Not your condition. He wants you to look at the Lord's table here today and be aware of not your deficiency, what's wrong with you, but what's right with you, your sufficiency. And what is our sufficiency? But the broken body, the bread of Jesus. And as you feed on the finished work of Jesus, come on, this is deep, but it's good. If you feed him, get fixated on the finished work of Jesus you'll begin to stretch out your faith and to be strong in faith because it's not about what you did or you didn't do. That would be about you. But this is about him. This is for Christ's sake. You belong at this table and you have a place here. And I don't care what kind of abuse that guy did in your life. 
and how you feel like use goods or you sinned one too many times. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you did last night or what you even did this morning. The reality is none of what you did or you didn't do can qualify or disqualify. Only what, here's the thing, your faith in what Christ has done on your behalf, the covenant between David and Jonathan, the covenant with God the Father and, and God the Son, that is everything. And it says, and so he sat and he was fixated and became aware, not of his deficiencies, but his sufficiency and fed his faith with the finished work, the broken body of Jesus, the covenant. It's a picture. And he sat as one of the king's sons forever. Amazing. Is there anybody left of the household of Saul? I'm a Zeba on assignment here today. That I may show the kindness of God to you for Jonathan, your father's sake. Can I ask you the question that God is asking you here today? Is there anybody left of the household of Adam that I, as Zeba here on, on assignment, may show the kindness of God to for Christ's sake? Is there anybody left that I may, of the household of Adam, that I may show the kindness of God? Come on, friend, with every head bowed and every eye closed here today. We hope that you enjoyed this edition of the Vivid Church podcast. For more information about Vivid Church, check out our website at www.vivid.church or look us up on Instagram at vivid.church. Have the best day.